Hey, hey, any youth leaders out there? Serving with youth in the church is probably one of the most enjoyable callings, but it brings with it a lot of responsibility. How do we effectively lead this rising generation? Well, I have good news for you. Leading Saints has organized the Young Saints Virtual Library, where we have 20 plus hours of presentations all about how to lead youth. We cover topics like how to help youth transition into adulthood, how to help them avoid loneliness, how to handle smartphones in class, and we even go over scientific data about how Latter-day Saint youth differ from other youth. If you'd like to review the Young Saints Library at no cost for 14 days, simply go to leadingsaints.org 14. That's leadingsaints.org 14. While you're at it, we'll give you access to all of our virtual libraries that cover several leadership-related topics. So click the link in the show notes or simply visit leadingsaints.org slash 14. Hey, if you're a newbie to Leading Saints, it's important that you know, what is this Leading Saints thing? Well, Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And the way we do that is through content creation. So we have this phenomenal podcast, we have a newsletter, we have virtual conferences, so much more. At articles on our website. I mean, I could go on and on, right? <laughs> and we encourage you to uh, jump in, check out Leading Saints, uh, go to the search bar at leadingsaints.org and type in some topics and see what pops up. We're just glad you're here to join us. Well, let me give you a quick intro to this week's episode. I had the opportunity to go out to my hometown of West Valley City and visit a high school that I had no idea was there. It's called Roots Charter High School. And the director of this high school is Tyler Bastian, a Latter-day Saint, who was one of the founders of this remarkable high school. And walking into this high school, again, it's in this business park. It's not your typical, you know, big box uh, high school that we're we're used to. They have about 200 students. And walking through the front door, there's just a different feeling about it. It was almost as if I was walking into a remarkable church, even though there's nothing like churchy or religious about it. They actually had a huge uh, mural of Mr. Rogers on the wall right when you walk in. So I knew this was my place. I love Mr. Rogers. And uh, I forgot how I originally got connected with Tyler Bastian, but I think just through social media and whatnot. And his approach to leading in this school context with a unique student body was so applicable to leading in the church and uh, putting that up against his church experience and uh, sort of contrasting the the two or seeing how they, they meld together was so inspiring. And Tyler goes over some principles here that are that will give you a new perspective on maybe how you're leading in your ward and also in your community. So I can't say enough about the good work Tyler's doing about Roots Charter High School. I just am so proud that something like this organization, this high school is happening in my hometown of West Valley City, Utah. So let's get into it. Here's my interview with Tyler Bastian, the director of Roots Charter High School. Today, I'm in my hometown of West Valley City, Utah with Tyler Bastian. How are you, Tyler? I'm good. How are you? This is great. We're actually at your office, in your office right now yeah. at the Roots Charter High School. Yep. Right? This this is your baby? I mean, you started the Roots Charter High School? I did. In 2015, we opened the doors and probably two years prior to that was kind of the getting it going, trying to figure out the philosophy the why behind the school. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, we opened in 2015. So do you have an education background or... I do somewhat. So kind of a long story. 
Do you want to hear it? Yes, do it. Jump in. (laughs) So I owned a company and kind of just wasn't, I didn't enjoy what I was doing. I owned a painting company. I shouldn't say didn't. I enjoyed it. It didn't, it wasn't fulfilling. So Mm -hmm. I owned a painting company, sold that and started Roots. And one of the reasons I sold it was I, I did a film. I used to make documentary films and I made a film about someone that I actually served, met on my mission. And through the process of making that film kind of was, I wouldn't call it a midlife crisis, but more like a midlife salvation, I guess. <laughs> and where'd you serve your mission? In Honduras. Okay. So I met him and just kind of reliving the philosophy and kind of who he was as a person and making the film really made me say, I, I want to go into education. I want to go back in, and I want to teach. Uh-huh. And so you were I, just, it was like a biographical film of this guy or? Yeah. yeah. So he spent 50 years building a helicopter. He had polio and he decided that that polio wasn't going to be the defining thing in his life. And so he said, I picked my problem. And the problem that I picked was a helicopter, was flying, was building a helicopter. And, and I had met him and, and I loved him. Um, and then, you know, going back and the process of filming this film really made me kind of step back and figure out kind of what did I want to do with my life? I actually taught, went through the process to be a LDS seminary teacher. Hmm. I enjoyed it. I really am drawn to naughty kids. I don't know any other, <laughs> I really don't know a better way to say that, but I'm drawn to kids that, that are inquisitive, that are, you know, more kind of questioning authority, maybe more aggressive. I enjoy that kind of conflict and figuring out how to work through it. And so I didn't get that much in seminary. And so I, I left seminary and taught Began teaching documentary film. So did you actually get hired as a seminary teacher? I was teaching. I I don't know what the process is now. Uh I was at the process where I taught every day, Mm -hmm. taught two classes every day. That's kind of where I was for for, a full school year. And this is in Utah where this is a paid job for those listening outside Mm -hmm. of Utah. It was kind of funny because I'd teach. I'd go and I'd get a paint job started with my guys, go teach seminary. When I was done take my suit off, put my paint clothes back on. Oh my goodness. Go back to painting. And I was also in school and then at night I'd go to school. And so it was a busy time. I really enjoyed, I enjoyed the youth. I enjoyed teaching, but I just wanted, I really wanted to, to be in a, in a more of a traditional school. I got hired to teach documentary filmmaking. We did that for maybe, I think I did it for two, actually two quarters. So a semester. And, and this was like in a public school? Yeah, I was in okay. another charter school. Oh, okay. I went to my boss and I said, hey, these really, they need, these kids need character development. My background is in uh, marriage and family relations with an emphasis in uh, mediation. And I was like, they need, they need like help and they can go on YouTube and they can learn to make films. And so I started teaching character development, had a lot of success with that and realized like, hey, there's got to be a better way, you know, a more authentic way to teach character. And that was kind of how we came, you know, we came up with roots. Okay, let me pause you there. How do you begin to teach character development? I mean, did you find a curriculum or how did that? Um, I kind of just, I took a bunch of, I took like the Arbinger Institute, oh, yeah. some of their curriculum mm-hmm. Love it. or their books. Actually, the textbook for the class that I taught was The Bonds That Make Us Free, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with that book. No. It's kind of the book that is by Terry Warner and it's the book that, all of Arbinger's kind of based on. Okay. Um, it's a big book, but it was amazing to see that the kids, they needed it and they wanted it, you know, and parents would be like, I don't know what you're doing, but my kid's different. And I'm like, I'm not, 
doing really anything. I'm exposing them to things that we've lost in society, um, empathy. I mean, we spend a month just every day talking about empathy every single day in different ways and telling stories. And, and by the end of that, these kids were like, I, they were more empathetic. I mean, it's a learned skill. And it was amazing to see, and it got me excited. I'm excited to say, okay, these, they want it, they need it. How do we make it bigger? You know, and that's, and we did that through Roots. Hmm. And, and there it began, huh? Yeah. And it yeah. was one of those, like, you just had to go out and get some funding. I mean, so the process is, people always ask me like, how do you do, how do you start a charter school? I'm like, you don't like it's, this is really, <laughs> it's not, it's a hard, it's hard. It's like it's, you don't go just file an LLC and now you have a charter school. No, right? I mean, it's a process. You yeah. have to write an, an application or a, you know, you have to write the charter. I think our charter is mm, 300 pages and going over laws, going over everything, curriculum. And then you have to go and present it to two different boards from the state and, and get it approved from both of them. I think the approval process took us about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, when they think charter school is like some rich parents paid to, for their kid to go to this school, but that's not necessarily how this charter school works, right? No, and it's not. <laughs> charter schools in Utah, I mean, they're free public schools. They're pretty much the same. They usually have a different mission or a different kind of mm-hmm. you know, purpose of what they're trying to accomplish. But we have to abide by all the same rules as a charter as a traditional public school. And so it really is, it's a public school. Kids don't pay anything. And yeah, you have to go through all of the hoops that, you know. Yeah. So you're funded with with state and federal money and then you independent donations as well. Yeah. So we, you know, we have to raise a pretty large chunk of money, mainly because our model includes a six acre farm. And so the kids are out there running a farm and that, that becomes you know, there's added expense. And we also, we've kept our numbers small so we can kind of focus in a different, mainly so we, these kids, we can use their names, we can know them, we can know their stories. And so we keep it at 200, which then again makes to where mm-hmm. you're funded per student. So when you're, when you lower your student number, you're lowering weight. And so we do have to raise money. Yeah. So how would you articulate like the mission of this? You were telling me a little bit about the type of student that comes here. Those maybe they'll have some behavioral problems in a traditional high school. They'll come here or maybe they're, they've experienced some intense bullying or, you know, that, and, and then they come here to find a more personal experience that can maybe focus on them. But so how do, how do you articulate the mission of, of Roots? So there's, that's a hard question because really <laughs> there's, there's the mission of the school itself is to get a student to graduate. And to do that, we kind of, we authenticate the learning. We try to. So it's like saying, Hey, whether that's a hands-on experience, we're trying to trying to get them to understand this is why you're learning this is and this is where you'll use it. And not only are we going to tell you, we're going to show you like this is the math you're learning and you use it like this outside on the farm or, or through whatever project we're doing. The kind of underlying mission really is to take a student who are human, who feels hopeless, who's in a situation where hope is not something that that they've experienced or that's been taken from them and reinstate them into that sense of hope, that sense of acceptance and really letting them know that they're loved and that they matter. Love it. So maybe break down, like what is the student body? Uh, what, you know, generally speaking, what's the typical student that arrives here? How would you uh, describe the student body? So it's when we started, we had a lot of kids that were coming for the farm. There's still some kids that come here. They want an outdoor experience. They want the animals. They want those experiences. But the bulk of our students are here because their previous school wasn't working. And they were either, were either kicked out 
or their parents pulled them or they just literally stopped going. And so for me, I love all my students, but that's for me, I, I really love all of my students, but the real purpose of, of Roots is, is for those students who this is their last option, mm. you know? And again, I don't want to take it, that opportunity from any kids. My, both my kids went here and graduated from Roots, but the purpose of the school is to provide something that's not being provided for kids who people aren't really worried about providing it for them. Yeah. So I'm intrigued by this concept of instilling hope and leading with love. You know, and again, as surprised nobody, we're going to try and, you know, draw some parallels to a church leadership experience because there is this feeling like when I do a lot of how I lead interviews, more often than not, I hear this principle of, well, you just got to love them, right? And I'm like, okay. I mean, it, that feels good. And I like on paper, it looks nice, but the execution of that can be tricky. And sometimes we're just like, I think that means I stand in front of a group of people and say, we love you, right? Or I love you. And anyways, how about those ministering numbers, right? Like, mm-hmm. so how do you begin to run an organization based on hope and love, especially a youth organization? So I think it's funny. And I think we lose this a lot in the gospel that charity, which is the pure love of Christ, is a gift that we have to ask for mm-hmm. most often. And so for me, even when I was teaching, I would tease my students. I'd be like, what do they pay me to do? And they're like, teach us. And I said, no, you teach yourselves. Like I can present stuff, but I can't, I don't put it in your brain. And we'd, and I'd walk them through and I'd say, well, no, no, no. And I'd say that I'm paid to love you. Like that's as a teacher, that's what I'm paid to do. And if I don't love one of you, I'm stealing money. Like part of that paycheck is being stolen. And I'd walk them through that. And that idea of like loving people is work. Like you don't just, some people do. I think some people are born with that gift. Yeah. Others, it's the, it's a labor. Like you have to actively be saying, you know, I don't love this person. I need to pray to where I do. And I find myself, I mean, I will have students that I'm like, Heavenly, you know, Heavenly Father, help me love this kid. Right. And I'm just going and going and going. Sorry, I get emotional. Yeah. And it, you find that it comes. And for me, really, you can't, I love your analogy of like, we stand up and we think, Hey, we love you. That's nothing. Like that doesn't, yeah. it means nothing. It's the, it's the tinkling of bells, right? Mm-hmm. Or how does that call yeah. it in scripture? I mean, yeah, it, yeah. it's not, charity is different and, it, and it, it truly is a gift. And so creating on a school level, a public school level, it's hard, but there's, religion doesn't have like, religion isn't the only place where love exists, right? And so there is a separation of church and state. So it's not like we're preaching to these kids, but at the same time, my number one goal is that they feel Christ's love, yeah. like that they feel that. And when I say Christ's love, it's not, I'm not, it's unconditional. It's not dependent on their behaviors. You know, I have to tell kids, I say, you know, you're failing every class, but that has nothing to do with how I feel about you. Like this discussion that I'm going to have with you has nothing to do with how I feel about you. I love you, whether you get zeros or whether you have a hundred percent. That love is not something that's on the table. Yeah. And those are the, taken from the table. Those are the words that you use. Yeah. Like, you know, because yeah. there's this feeling, especially like, you know, you know, you mentioned church and state or professional environment. You're like, hey, you know, we really care about you. Or, you know, that love can feel like more intimate than maybe, you know, someone feels comfortable stepping into in a professional environment. But you just, you just lay into that. Right. And yeah, you can't. Yeah. And, it, you know, my thing is, is that we've sterilized environments thinking that that's how you keep an environment safe. And it's not. When you sterilize an environment and say you can't touch that person, you can't say that you love them, you can't, you know, you can give them knuckles, you can shake their hand and that's it. What you've actually done is you've created a less safe environment. 
because that need for love is still there. Now someone can come in and they can take advantage of that need and they can groom and they can be the evil that they want to be because the hunger is there. Whereas if, if you say, you know what, like at Roots, it's a loving environment and you'll hear kids say, hey, Bastion, I love you. Or, hey, you know, when, I, when a kid's in trouble, one of my first questions is often, you know, I love you, right? And if that student says no, then I have to go, well, what is, who is mm-hmm. an adult that you do know loves you? Because this discussion... It's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to work unless you you know Mm. that I love you. And I have to be okay to then say, okay, you know, this adult loves you. Give me a second. I'm going to go grab them. They're going to have this discussion with you because you can't lead. You can never lead someone that you don't love and that doesn't feel that they love you. You can force them, right? You can force them and you can manipulate them. But leading is love-based, period. Like if you're going to lead someone, love has to be a component in, in my opinion. Yeah. So there's this component of just, just saying it, you know, on a one-to-one basis, right? Again, sometimes this cop out of like, oh, I'm going to say it generally, like to all the student body, we love you, right? But to really, you know, lead out with that love, make sure that foundation is there or else leading and following is not going to happen, mm-hmm. right? Any, any other like tactics or habits routines you have to make sure you're like instilling love in the culture around here? Yeah. So we, we have a number two, four, three. We kind of stole it from Mr. Rogers. I'm a huge Mr. Rogers Mm, fan. Me too. Yeah. His number. He raised me partly. Yeah. yeah. His number was one, four, three. He actually maintained 143 pounds for most of his life. I mean, he said it takes one letter to say I, four letters to say love and three letters to say you. We just swapped that one with a two, which is we, takes two letters to say we, and we've painted it everywhere. I mean, everywhere you go. Yeah, I saw it walking in here. Yeah, yeah, it's everywhere. And so for me, I think that reminders as much for the adults or or the people who are leading as it is for for the students. I mean, we tell the students, hey, if you're having a bad day, just look up and you'll see that we love you. Like, don't look down. You won't see that anyone loves you if you're staring at your feet. But if you look up, you'll see it. And that's a reminder. We've done that. And, and that was a transformative. It sounds weird, but that was completely transformative for our school. We went from averaging seven suicide attempts per school year, which actually, when I say suicide attempts, I mean actual self-harm with the intent to, you know, to end their life, to we went two and a half years-ish with zero. Kids were still hospitalized at probably the same rate, but they weren't they weren't harming themselves. They were finding an adult and they were saying, Hey, I need help. Like I'm, this is bad. And I really sit. The only thing we changed is we, and it sounds weird is we painted that number everywhere. And that's the power of, you know, love. I think you have to, there has to be visuals of it. There has to be words of it. You know, they have to hear it. They have to see it and they have to feel it. And so the hearing it, we say it, you know, we love you. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. you stand up in front of a crowd and say, we love you. But it's more than standing up in an assembly. It's, it's those moments where, you know, you see in their eyes something's wrong. And when you love them, you know something's wrong, right? Yeah. When you've, and they know it. Like I had an experience with a student. I said, are you okay? And they said, yeah. I said, you're not. Like, you're not okay. I can, you're not. And the student said, you're right. I'm not. I want to kill myself. And it, boom, right? We like, and I look back on that and I think, if I hadn't known that student and if I hadn't been in, in all of our staff, you know, we put them, try to put them in that mindset. I would have just said, you know, 
how are you? I'm okay. Okay. See ya. Right. And I don't know what the outcome would have been. And it's love that draws that bridge of saying, I don't think you are. And then the student that love back saying, you're right. I'm not right. And, and if you apply that to any leadership, if you're applying that to your calling. It's like, it's more than just saying like, how are you today? Um, it's saying, I know you're not okay today because I know you, yeah. I know your name. I know your story. I know how you, I know how you carry yourself and you're not, you're not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when you, when that's your goal, it, it opens up kind of a new world. And when you walk into roots, it feels different. Like you're like, is this really a, like, what is this? Right. I've had people actually say that they walk in, they're like, what is this place? Like, it's a school. Like, it doesn't feel like a school. I'm like, that's good. You know, I don't want it to, I want it to feel like a community. I want you to see movement that's real. I want you to see conversations that are real. You know, I remember the first couple of years I would chase kids down. If I knew like someone was coming to visit, I would like run around in front of them and be like, Hey, nobody swear, nobody swear, nobody swear. Right. I swear you're going to be in tons of trouble. Um, Because these kids, a lot of their language is not, Mm -hmm. a lot of their language is not appropriate. It's not what, you know, what we would call like, yeah, appropriate. Mm -hmm. And I got to the point where I said, I'm more, I'm, I'm more concerned about what people think than that student now. I'm running around and I'm not doing it for them. I'm doing it for me. I'm doing it because I want this school to be seen as something that it's not. Right. And so now I'm like. I'll sometimes I'll tell like, Hey, you're going to hear this. You're going to smell this. Like you're going to, you're going to hear these things. You're going to smell, you know, you're going to smell that the word of wisdom is being broken. You're going to hear language that you don't hear in your home, but that's not what we're, we're not trying to chase that down. That's not what we're trying to change, which sounds terrible. And some people are like, you should be. I'm like, no, I want to change their lives. I don't want to change their habits. Yeah. Like I can't change anybody, but I can give them an experience that changes their lives. Yeah. Because it's a, it's a leader or a behaviors first type of approach, which yeah. naturally feels like, Oh yeah, that's a good place to start. Why don't we make sure everybody's behaviors in line mm-hmm. and then we'll, we'll get onto the love stuff, but you can't, none of that works without a foundation of love. And, and as you've illustrated, you really have to work at it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, and you have to infuse it into every inch and every corner of the culture. And there's sort of a the subset principle of like setting vision and developing culture, it's like, it's got to be everywhere. It's not mm-hmm. like, well, we start every Monday morning with that, you know, that pledge we say about, we love everybody, you know, like it's yeah. got to be everywhere that they, and it's just walking the halls here. It's like two, four, three everywhere. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you can constantly, it's a visual, you know, just those things you listed that it's a visual, it's either going to hear it, they're going to experience it. And then with that love that the behaviors are secondary or tertiary, mm-hmm. right? Like they're it's just not where you start because it won't work without that feeling of, because love is like directly connected to acceptance. If your mm-hmm. students walk in here and feel like I am not accepted here, therefore I'm not safe here. Therefore I'm not going to talk to anybody. You know, it just builds on that. But the, the foundation of acceptance is crucial. Right? It is. And, and you mentioned the safety. I mean, they have to feel safe. And what's funny is that we have students who, who come from backgrounds where they have and, you know, they've exhibited behaviors that are not safe, not safe to them, not safe to the people that they're interacting with. And we, we had a, probably three years ago, we had a survey that went out and it went out to every school and our safety scores were like really high. And it, I thought, and this is, is like emotionally and psychological safety, not like it's, yeah, well, it just <laughs> says, do you feel safe in your school or work environment? Wow. And we were scoring higher than some of the schools that are in very different 
you know, targeting very different students. And it felt good to see that. And I think that's feeling safe and feeling loved and feeling accepted. If that's not there, I mean, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's that that base has to be like strong and, you know, they have to be provided for. There's certain things that you just have to to say if you if you're here, it's a given. Yeah. If you're here, you're loved. If you're here, there's food. If you're here, if you need something, our community will help provide it. Yeah. And we provide shoes for so many kids. We provide glasses. We provide, you know, and we provide any barrier. My number one goal is to remove any barrier that keeps them from feeling love and finding acceptance and learning what they need to learn to graduate. Mm-hmm. So take that, the concept of safety into like a, a church environment or a ward environment where it's like, you know, most leaders listen, listen is like, hey, listen, I mean, nobody's getting punched in the face at church. I don't hear any fights in the hallways. Bullying, you know, we call it out maybe amongst the youth if it comes up and we're good. Like, how could a, a ward leader infuse their organization with safety? So that's a fascinating, you know, I think, I think one, they have to start, I think everyone needs to... Every adult needs to learn the name of every child in that ward. Mm. If you want a kid to feel safe, call them by their name. Mm. Um, oh, that's powerful. And, it's so and, simple. I mean, it's so simple. Yeah. Like when people say, what, what's the one thing we could do to change the culture of, you know, fill in the blank. We're talking about wards right now. What could we do to, to change the culture of the ward? Learn each other's names, especially adults learning youth's names. Find a common goal. What's the common goal? And it's not as easy. I don't think, I think wards are like common goal. Like we're. We bring people to Christ, right? We bring people to Christ. And like, you can't even define like, what's your daily actions that bring people to Christ? Like, well, I preach the gospel. It's like, you know, and and even that you're like, what are you, like, what are you talking about? So Mm -hmm. for safety, really, it's, it's every member should be able to look around that ward. And if there's disputes among them, they've resolved them. If there's animosity they nip it in the bud. It's having difficult conversations. And that sounds weird, but to create a safe environment, you have to not be afraid of difficult conversations. Mm. Hey, that hurt my feelings. Yeah. I mean, just this morning, a student was saying stuff and I said, you know, when you say that, that hurts people's feelings. And, and the student was like, well, you know, kind of being flippant about it. And I said, let me back up. When you say that, that hurts my feelings. Like my feelings are hurt. And that's different than that's, there's no safety that's compromised there. If I had said, when you say that, you're going to get in trouble. Safety is compromised for that mm. student. They're immediately thinking, what's that going to look like? If I say I'm mad, safety's compromised. What does that look like? And I think it's moving towards that. And in a ward, you know, and how many times is it in the scriptures is it in, you know, everything we do, there should be no disputations among you. That's creating safety. Yeah. And why are there disputations? because we're not having difficult conversations. Yeah. We're holding on to things, right? That, that there's no reason to hold on to them. Yeah. You know? And my mind goes to the recent talk by President Nelson, you know, Peacemakers Needed, I think it was titled. Mm-hmm. And he, he uses the concept of like, this does not mean that we want peace at all costs. And that means, oh, you know, we don't, let's not have the conversation because there may be some conflict there. Like, no, 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 we, we're uh, making peace by getting into the conversation this this difficult. Mm-hmm. And I see like, and I remember this feeling as a church leader myself where, you know, maybe there's sort of, you know, there's some contention in this presidency or this doesn't, let's just release him, you know, mm-hmm. and we'll put him in the youth and him in Sunday school and okay, it's problem solved. But I remember there's this sort of this conflict when I was bishop amongst the high priest group leadership 
And I called these four men into my office. I mean, not like a principal or anything, but, and we just like, all right, let's get like, what's going on here, guys? Like, let's get through this. Cause there's, there's such a, a larger vision and purpose to what we're trying to accomplish here. And if, if, if you can't work together, like let's talk it out until we, you can work together. And, and it was uncomfortable. Right. But leaning into those conversations is this, it stimulates safety. Mm-hmm. It does. And it, I mean, it makes for once you've established it, that's just part of the culture. Yeah. Um, and then they're not surprised when you come to them next time. They're no. like, hey, wait a minute. What did you just say there? Like, let's mm-hmm. talk about this, right? Yeah. And they know that that's going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do. And and it's it's that, you know, wards, I think, I think you have to really be a community, a healthy community before you can be a healthy ward. Mm-hmm. And so that's even saying, okay, do I know my neighbor who's not LDS? Like, am I treating them? Like, do I know their names? Can I talk to their kids? Do they feel comfortable to come to me when to borrow something? Um, do I feel comfortable going to them to borrow things? If you think that, you know, you can isolate your ward community in your physical community and then have a healthy ward community, you're, you're, you don't understand community building. You don't understand. Mm-hmm. You're off, right? You're yeah. off. And, you know, when you hear that, that idea that, you know, you, you, you hear often like, oh, these kids aren't, you can't play with those kids or my kids weren't able to play with these kids because of religious differences or political differences. It's like, that's going to bleed into every community you have. You know, the way you live in one community will dictate how you live in every community. Yeah. And, and that's another thing for wards really to, to get to where, you know, it's, it's not about, it's about, even if you say this is about our geographic area right <laughs> yeah and and i often when my friends are bishops i'm like you're the bishop of every single person mm-hmm. that lives in that neighborhood i had an experience with a counselor from a school we were doing a home visit and this kid was in pretty bad shape right making some really bad decisions lived in a very difficult area and um, as we were leaving the house it like i turned around to walk down the steps and it, and literally across the street from from his house is the parking lot of an LDS church. And it just, you know, I looked at the counselor. I said, across the street from this kid is, and at the time, you know, a young men's president is a bishop, is a bunch of members of that ward. And he is dying on the vine at the doorstep of this chapel. And I think that in having that mentality, and I'm not, I fail miserably, right? But when we have that at the forefront, like, why doesn't anybody know him? You know, why doesn't, you know, and he, his life has not ended up where it should be. Yeah. And, and he has those resources. Yeah. And so I think that's a long answer and I don't know if I even answered anything, but I think really expanding the tent of your ward and, and making sure that everyone is, is under that tent and is known. Yeah. I'm just thinking like what a phenomenal question for a ward council to wrestle with is, is, you know, you get so focused on the next activity or the ward thing or the meetings, but how is the ward influencing the community that influences the ward, right? Mm -hmm. Because those individuals within the ward, they're not spending all the time in that ward, you know, environment. They go to church or maybe an activity here or there, but then they are returning to a community where there's there can be positive and negative influences there. And and then how can the ward influence that community? Right. And I get, you know, some of these larger geographic wards, it might be tricky, but nonetheless, I, it's worth like taking to the council of, of revelation of saying like, yeah, you know what? 
how can we influence the community that influences our culture and our ward and go from there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Powerful. And it's, I mean, it's modeled by the savior. I mean, pretty much every time the savior healed someone, it was either he was headed to heal them or it was an interruption. Mm. And are we living our lives to where every interruption we strive to heal, you know? And, and I think I fail miserably at that, right? And interruptions an interruption and I need to get to my next, I need to plan the activity. I need to do these things, this thing, this thing. And it's like those interruptions need to be what drives the spirit, what drives our actions in so many ways. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and it's, I learned that really through bringing a principle because I think I have more interruptions than anything else in the day. And how am I treating those interruptions? Cause those interruptions have names, they have stories, they're students. Like my students are, and that sounds bad, but they're an interruption to get paperwork done, to get everything done. But I need to flip that story to where the interruption is the logistics. The interruption is actually the administering, the suckering and the healing is never the interruption. Mm -hmm. And that's really, you know, what we call interruptions is, is going to dictate how successful we are as a leader. Yeah. Any other concept we skipped over as far as establishing safety and maybe award setting that uh, would be worth mentioning? I think being okay with political differences, that's been one that I've, I've over, especially as I've over the last, I don't know, six, seven, 10 years watching just that idea that you know, we have a common religion, but when they're, when politics or, or opinions aren't common, safety goes out the door. Mm. Um, and I think really allowing it to be a safe place where someone who has a difference of opinion or so, someone who's questioning and, and especially for the youth, allowing them to ask really hard questions. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if I believe this, like how an adult responds to that's going to show safety. When someone says something that's, you know, that's not part of your set of beliefs and it's how we react to that is going to either break or create more safety. And when you're working with youth, it's often that first thing they say is a test to see how is this person going to react? You know, so they'll say like, I don't know if I like going to church and you're like, you flip out, right? And you're like, what do you mean you don't like going to church? It's because you're doing it wrong. You, you know, <laughs> yeah. how dare you? When the deeper question is, I don't know if God sees me. That's huge. Yeah. And when we blow up with a kid, yeah. like who says, I don't know if I want to go to church, you're never going to get to that question. Like, I don't know if God sees me. And if you don't get to the question, I don't know if God sees me, I don't know how you're going to establish safety. Yeah. I mean, it's always buried below like 10 questions, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. The, the real answer, the root mm -hmm. of it all. Right. Yeah. And they're just waiting to see, you know, how you, how you respond to that little thing, whether you're actually going to get to and being okay with like, you know, I don't know if I like church. You know, I don't know if I do either sometimes, but what makes you think you don't or, mm -hmm. or you know, what are some things that, that you struggle with? And then just, you know, and, and you create safety through loving questions. You know, how do you feel about this and listening? And I think one of the biggest things that keeps us from creating safety is wanting to present ourselves as something that we're not. And when you have a whole ward of people doing that, how are you ever going to create safety? You know, because anything that one person's dealing with that word, chances are there's someone else in that community that's dealing with it net at the same time or has dealt with it in the past. And so being like, hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm dealing with creates safety. Because when someone stands up and you can go as extreme, if you have someone bearing their testimony that says, you know, I've struggled with pornography my whole life and this is how it's affected me. Does that make an awkward 
sacrament meeting or a testimony meeting? It does. But at the same time, if you want to save those kids, they now can look to someone who's worked past that. And if we're all hiding and we're pretending that we're perfect, you're not going to create safety. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in the context of youth, I often pose the question of if a youth leader, an adult youth leader ever had to visit with the bishop in a confession setting, how come you've never shared that with the youth? And I had a sweet interaction with my nieces and nephews where, where I had the opportunity to share of multiple times as a youth, where I had to set the appointment, going to the bishop covered in shame and, and what that was like for me. And it, they sort of lean in they're like, Oh, like there's something here that he's like me now, rather than, Oh, you know, uncle Kurt, he's been the bishop and you know, he's just, he seems to figure it out. Right. Yeah. And showing that authenticity goes so far, you know, it does. And youth thrive on, they have like radar for (laughs) when you're not being authentic. Yeah. Right. They see it, they feel it. We all do. But I think as adults, we get so good at being, not being authentic ourselves that we lose the ability to see that that person's not being authentic and it becomes commonplace. Whereas youth, they're pure and they haven't developed. The world hasn't messed them up enough. And so when they know when they know when you're not being authentic and that authenticity creates safety. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's so powerful. The student body is around 200 mm-hmm. students and that's on purpose because you could increase a student yeah. body and there's some additional funding opportunities. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, when you're looking at the spreadsheets, that's probably a temptation, right? Yeah. Why do you keep it at that, that level? I mean, generally speaking, I think, There's so many, there's a lot of reasons. The simplest is that the smaller the number, the more attention each student can get. You know, Mm -hmm. we have about 50 employees and 200 kids. That's a pretty good ratio to be able to really be able to focus on, on focus on kids and focus on, you know, knowing their story. And somebody, we talk about our students have high trauma for the most part. There's, I don't know if you're familiar with adverse childhood experiences, I did a whole There's, episode on it a few weeks ago. Yeah, ACEs. Is, yeah. And we, we train on ACEs. We're trauma-informed school. And, and you hear a lot, like you did an episode on it, of mm-hmm. ACEs, right? Mm-hmm. You hear it all the time. But what you often don't hear is that they did a follow-up study where all of the negative results of ACEs were pretty much wiped out by one loving adult. Wow. And so there's a follow-up study. Mm-hmm. And, and what they were finding is they're finding these outliers. Like, okay, this kid has an ACE score of six, but he's not experiencing these same outcomes. And when they did that study, they found out that those outliers had a loving adult that that was able to alleviate a lot of the effects of those adverse childhood experiences. So with our staff, we say, you know, you have to be that loving adult. If you have 300, 400, 500 kids, it's a lot, it's, it's a lot harder. It's harder for the principal to know a kid. And if I know, don't know a kid, and then I'm put in a really difficult situation I won't be able to handle that situation the way it needs to be handled because I don't know. I don't know what the kid's experiencing. I don't yeah. know who he is. And so just for community purposes, we keep that number small. I think, you know, that's probably the biggest thing. A lot of communities, you know, growth is the number one goal. We got to grow. We got to grow money, grow this, grow this. We have, you know, growth is progress. That's a false doctrine. Like growth is not progress. Progress mm. is actually progress. Like, are you seeing growth on an individual level, not on a like institutional level? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of schools and I get it all the time. They're like, you've been open since 2015 and you went from having 160 kids to 200 and now you've had 200 for 
four years, like when are you going to grow? I'm like, yeah, you have to pick your goals. Like my goal is not to grow student body. My goal is something different. Whatever problem, whatever goal you pick, that's where your energy will go. So you have to be super careful. Like what is the goal? My goal is not test scores. And that's not, you know, I'll probably get a call just for saying that on your podcast, (laughs) right? If anyone's, any of my bosses are listening, but if I set a goal, okay, my goal is test scores. Then when a really difficult kid comes in and I know, okay, he's going to have behavior issues. He's got academic issues. He's going to ruin my goal. Like my goal, I won't be able to meet my goal because of this person. That is a recipe for disaster on that person level because I'll look for every reason to not love him, to get him out of the community. But if I say, hey, I don't even care about test scores. My goal is the student, then I can keep that focus. And to say we're going to stay at 200 and we'll figure out the finances is us saying we're not going to let finances or growth get in the way of that focus on that kid, on these kids. And the kids are 200 kids. And that's what it's going to be. Yeah. And my mind goes back to, and there's studies or research whatnot, but I've heard these general terms of like, you know, the human experience and mind was designed that they can't really hold more weight or community weight or trauma above like around 200 people, 150, Mm -hmm. 200 people. Like, and so back in the day, that's the typical village was about 200 people. And now we're in the society where, you know, there's a war in Ukraine going on and we're sort of in it, mm-hmm. but we don't have the capacity to, to hold that, you yeah. know? And then on top of that, the, you know, this news thing and that thing, and it's just like overwhelming. And then we wonder why anxiety and stress is off the charts types of things. And this is at the root of why social media is so poisonous. But, and so it really, you got it. You have to like set that limit and, you know, an award, you know, in a, I would say in a healthy area of, you know, saturated Latter-day Saint area, you know, in Utah, you're going to get 200, 300 people in a sitting in a sacrament meeting chapel on Sunday. Mm -hmm. Right. And to recognize like, yeah, we, if it gets too big, we may need to talk about splitting that and run. And I mean, that's a whole nother thing, but just to know that for you to be an effective leader, you can't be the principal of a 3000 student body school. I mean, and they hadn't, practically, you know, the practicalities of it. Sometimes yeah, there's those schools exist out there, but part of your leadership is like, I need to know my limits so that mm-hmm. I can show up for these students. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and that's understanding those limits is, is, you know, really going to be key to any, any leadership. Yeah. yeah. And I remember that, you know, moving into a stake role, being going from Bishop to a stake presidency, I was like trying to be the Bishop for all these, you know, 5,000 people. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have that capacity. And when I shifted of like, well, actually I'm going to be a leader to all the bishoprics. I'm like, oh, I can do that. You know, yeah. I can, I can hold that, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it shifts that way. So I'm curious, sort of putting up against the tradition that uh, bishoprics and bishops with youth interviews and whatnot, do you have a routine of like you're meeting one-to-one with each student at some point or how often, how does that work? So we've broken all of, every student has we have what's called a kid program and it stands for know, identify and discover. Um, and so those kids, every kid has a leader or a advisor and I given, and you know, I mean, I don't know, I know every kid and I interact with them, but those one-on-ones happen with that kid advisor, that kid, you know, has somebody that he or she does go to and that knows them. And then they're, they're really the advocate for that student 
they're the ones that are going and saying, I'm worried about these are my kids that I'm worried about. And here's why. And then we have, we call them chasers. So it's two adult individuals that are chasing kids that have fallen through the cracks, Mm. doing home visits and doing those things. So even that, yeah, I have 200, but I know my limits are, I can't be that one-on-one for all 200. You know, I can try to connect with all of them, but I can't, I have to be okay that some of them are going to hate me. I still have to love them. They're not going to connect with me. Mm. They're not going to want me to be their whatever, their best friend. They're, they just don't connect with yeah, me. They're not right? your first go-to source when they're having a bad day. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have kids that won't talk to me, right? <laughs> and I say, hey, how are you? They walk right by me. They mm-hmm. ignore me. They don't. No engagement, right? And as a leader, you naturally think, okay, I got to, let's get him on the schedule, right? Let's, mm-hmm. you know, but you got to be okay with you have to be okay surrendering with them to somebody else, right? Yeah. You have yeah. to be okay with them. Um, and you have to drop your ego, right? You can't be like, you have to treat me this way. You have to do this. Now there's respect, but, but it's okay if a kid, you know, if I put up my hand to give them five or to give them knuckles and they just blow by me, I can question, but I have to also allow that space and be like, you know what? That's okay. I'm here. Like someday, you know, just kind of, and not demand, you know, you can give love. Anthony DeMello talks about, I don't know if you're from, I love Anthony DeMello, who was mm-hmm. a, He's a philosopher, Uh Catholic, Jesuit. And he talks about how we come in this culture, like we say, like, you have to have love. And he says, that's not true. You don't have to be loved. You know, we talk about how if you're not loved, you'll die. He's like, that's, you know, true when you're a baby. But as an adult, you don't have to be loved to survive. You have to give love to survive. Hmm. And I've thought about that a lot over the years of like that idea of, like, it's not about receiving, it's about giving. So my job is not to be loved. My job is to love. It's to love unconditionally. And that unconditionally, when, when you're in a leadership position, is I have to love those who despitefully use me and treat me poorly and hate me. I have to love them even if they call me an enemy. And that's you get really good at that as a principle, right? Because you're everybody's enemy when they start. Like, yeah. I don't think we've had a kid that started here that didn't probably hate their principal at one time or another in their life. And so my job is not to have them love me. It's to love them. In leadership, that is a key because we, we flip it so often. Like to be a good leader, you have to be loved by your people. No, you have to love your people. Like, mm-hmm. because you can't control... And without being dishonest and getting yourself in hot water, you can't control who loves you. You can only control who you love. You think if, you know, I often joke, I'm like, if the savior was worried about being loved, I don't know if he would have done some of the hard things he did. Mm -hmm. Like, I think we forget how hard that would have been to stand on a mount and tell the people of that time under that law to love your enemies, to turn the other cheek so they can smack you again. Like those are hard, <laughs> those cults, that was like the opposite of everything those people believed. And if he had been worried about them loving him, I think he, that, I don't even know if he would have given that sermon. Yeah. Um, and as leaders, I think we do, we shy away from, from the hard sayings because we're worried about being loved. But when we love, you don't shy away from the hard sayings. Yeah. You, you embrace them and you move forward. Yeah. And Leadership is super difficult and we make it more difficult because we want to be loved. Yeah. You touched on a little bit. Talk to me about like when you get a new student here, like 
how do you bring them into the culture in an effective way? I'm very, you know, we often get kids, especially kids who come from like a gang environment and they're an active gang member, they'll walk in and I see this posturing, right? And it's not strength-based posturing, it's fear-based posturing. So they're, you know, mad dogging or giving everyone dirty looks. They're trying to establish that they are tough and they're scary and they're these things. So when I see that, I'll pull that individual student in and say, hey, I noticed when you walked in, these are the things I'm seeing. You don't need to do that here. Like, you don't need it. Like, uh, you know, and they'll give me, yeah, yeah, I wasn't doing that. I said, okay, we're going to have a conversation in a couple of weeks and then let's, let's revisit this. And then when I notice that they're not posturing anymore, I pull them in again and say, hey, I noticed that you're not posturing. They're like, yeah, I don't need to do that here. I'm like, you don't. And so there's the acclimating of saying, I recognize you don't think this is a safe environment. I promise you it is. And here's how I'm going to show you. And then you have kids that come in and it's the opposite, right? They're not posturing, but they're afraid of their own shadow. They're afraid of of what's going on. And same thing, you pull them in and say, I've noticed that you're, you know, and so it's, you can't just oftentimes to acclimate or to bring someone into a community, you have to be very clear with them. This is what this community is. You have to show them, like I said before, you have to show them through visuals. They have to hear it. So you have to say it. And then you have to actually like have them feel it, right? And the showing, you know, we have a yellow stoplight when you walk in. We have these like visual anchors. The yellow stoplight, we tell the kids like, you're here, you're safe, slow down. Like you don't need to be scared. You don't Mm -hmm. need to run. That, That yellow light means slow down. So we have those visuals and we remind them. And that's the, you know, that's how you bring them in is you have those, in my opinion, you have those three anchors. So you have a visual, again, a visual, you know, a visual, a, a verbal and a feeling. Yeah. Any advice on like how a youth leader could use those principles? Like, I don't know, the bishop probably won't you paint the wall or, you know, like mm-hmm. in just our structure and, and tradition, like anything you would do to in, instill those principles? Yeah. I mean, we, one year we were like, how do we have a kid have that two, four, three experience? Like at home, everywhere we go. So what we, we did something, I mean, it's so simple. We just had a bunch of little rocks, little black rocks, and we had them engraven with two, four, three. And we gave them to every kid. We said, keep this in your pocket. Like everywhere you go now, you've got two, four, three Mm. with you. So I think it's being creative with those visuals. I mean, the youth program now has those visuals, but are we using them for what they are? You know, each pass gets the little term I the you know you get a ring a CTR yeah. ring you uh-huh. get this then you get this are we building those up to where those are part of our culture and it's a rite of passage and it's a big deal to receive that visual mm-hmm. uh, so it's there we're just not tapping into to the potential of it the power of it there's a pulpit like are we talking about why there's a pulpit in the sacrament meaning are we talking about why you know fill in the blank cuz again everything's there to show that and so the visuals are there, the verbals there, we're singing it. We're singing lead kindly light is my favorite hymn. And, and I talk with my youth about why that's my favorite hymn, what it did for me and my mission. Are we having those verbal uh, reminders? And, and then the feeling, you know, when I was a classroom teacher full time, I would watch those kids and I talk about how I watched, what did their shoulders do when they walked in my room? Did they tense up? Did they relax? And if I see a kid walk in and he tenses up, that's the kid that I'm like, hey, what's going on? Like, 
I have to be very intentional about like, yeah, what are they visually? What am I seeing that they're experiencing? And it's a funny experience if you're on the stand, like when I'm speaking or something and I'm on the stand and I watch people come in, you learn so much by how they walk in that chapel. And you really want to experience it. Try to sit up there when there's a farewell. Because then you got youth coming in that have left the church. You got youth coming in that aren't going on a mission, but then they're here to see their friend go on a mission. How do they walk into that chapel? Um, I think that should be the bishop's number one visual. It's like, I, I'm just going to stand, sit up here. And I even wonder if do you stay up there as bishop and then let the counselors go and just watch where are they sitting? How are they sitting? Who are they connecting with? And at Roots, we do that. We wa- I watch often in the morning, I'll stand up front and I'll watch how are they coming in? How are they being dropped off? You know, what's that experience? And you have to, culture is a job and it has to be, you know, sometimes a full-time job, sometimes a part-time job. It is the leader's job is culture. Mm. I love that. So good. And and I'm just, my mind goes to like, you know, I'm the deacon's quorum advisor and what an experience it would be to just take that group of boys and and walk around the church because there's there are those visual components like even the table where the sacrament is blessed and where the bread is broke right there's the the bishop's office that structure that that room alone has so much significance and there's some components where maybe i don't know i'm just thinking like the 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 wall with the plaques of missionaries you know out like that is communicating something to the culture but are we taking time to make sure the right message is being communicated by these components that we just sort of throw to the, oh, it's tradition. This is what we do. We got, mm-hmm. You know, we've always been doing plaques or we've always been doing the, the bulletin board that way, right? And to actually give them meaning and infuse it. So when they see it, they then see the meaning that you've maybe infused into the culture. Mm-hmm. And you're building it up. Like, you know, I mean, even as a deacon's quorum advisor, are you scheduling a time where they can go in and they can sit in that bishop's office like they will when they're a priest yeah. and building that up being like, when you're a priest, you have your class in here. What does that mean to have your class in the bishop's office? What does it mean that the bishop is the president of your quorum? Like, what do these things mean? Those things are there. Like, and you're not like if a kid, you want that kid to look forward to like, I can't wait to be a priest where I get to interact with the bishop every Sunday. He's in the room when mm-hmm. I'm being taught. Like, and I think we shy away from those kind of things as leaders because we don't want to, we don't want to seem arrogant or we don't want to build ourselves up. But in my opinion, it's less humble to not build up those yeah. things, to not say it, it means something when I talk to a kid as a bishop. That's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Like that is a big deal, you know, and you're not a big deal. Yeah. Like you're just, you're, you are a human, right? But when you're a bishop, that's a big deal that the bishop patted me on the back. And that actually goes for the adults in your ward too. Like yeah. when you're a bishop and you walk down off the stand and you pat someone on the back, say, Hey, you know, you know, I love you. Right. Like how was your week? Like, tell me that matters. Right. Yeah. And, and we, I think we forget that and we forget that those visuals are there. The culture is there. We're just not taking advantage of it. Yeah. Yeah. And we're such a, we have such a strong tradition in ceremony, you know, you know, the temple alone is an example of that, but to, you know, I think it's sometimes easy to, oh, we got to do that. You know, they got to confirm the priesthood on that Okay, Let's sneak in here quick and do it. But like to make and like sit in it and make it an event of like, here we are, mm-hmm. like 
you know, and, and rather than just get the paperwork done and put the hands on the head, say the prayer, do it. But like, why don't we take some time to, I, I don't know, you can just infuse so much into this is it. Like, mm-hmm. and the, the boys that are watching this are thinking someday, yeah, that, that's me someday. Mm-hmm. Right. And the, yeah, there's so up. much, yeah. Building it up is a powerful thing. Ask a few, few more questions. We still good. Yeah. You know, especially working with youth, there's always this, uh, the home environment scapegoat. Like, oh, well, you know, I do what I can on our Wednesday activities, but you know, if the parents would just help out more, you know, we sort of put it on them or whatnot. How do you, how do you engage with that home environment that could be really negative or traumatic and to develop that, that student when you only have them a certain part of the day? So you have to, for us, it's, it's being in the home and it's, it's never blaming what goes on. And we, you know, you still do like, you're right. It is a scapegoat, but it's also saying like, I'm not gonna, the home is, is the home. We can't change it, but we can be in it. A parent, I can't change that parent, but that parent can also know that I love them, that Mm -hmm. I'm not here to judge you. And I'll say to parents sometimes when there's a difficult thing, we'll be like, I am a parent as well. And there's no judgment of you for what we're talking about that your child did. Like, I get it. Like, you know, just taking that, taking that off the table and creating that safety for that parent. Like, Hey, I, I don't think you're a bad parent. I think you're doing the best you can. Like, I know you're doing the best you can. And sometimes that looks terrible, right? Like sometimes the best we can do is still so pitiful that like it's laughable almost like you're like, that's the best. Yes. It's the best I can do today. Like that's the best I can do. This is why we need Jesus, right? (laughs) Yeah. And I tell, I tell, you know, we talk in the staff group, like you have to immediately, your mind has to go, everyone's doing the best that they can. And that part of grace of being like, that is the best they can do for the circumstances and where they are at right now. And I'm going to love them for what they've done, not for what they haven't done. I'm going to love them for who they are, not hate them for who they aren't. And that's, that's kind of that key to saying, okay, you're going back again to your safety. The safety is that safety is there when you, when you, you can't change a home, but going on a ward level, I think a bishop has to, or leaders in general, right? Young women's president, everyone that's a leader, you have to say, there's not a home in this ward that I wouldn't feel comfortable knocking on the door. Mm. And if, if there is a home in that ward where you don't feel comfortable knocking on the door, that's, you have to fix that yeah. in your own head. Now you might knock on the door and they'll be like, get off my porch. You're not afraid of it. Like your love and you've prayed and you feel that to them to where you're like, I can knock on their door. And it's surprising how many, how often that's not the case. How often I'm scared to go to a parent walks in and I'm like, that's the last parent I wanted to see today. And immediately that's my moment of repentance and like, why? What's wrong with me that that's the last parent I want to see? What am I afraid of that that's the last parent I want to see? And, you know, oftentimes parents are the hardest thing to deal with as, as an educator. Yeah, right? I bet. Yeah. I've been spit on by a parent. I mean, I've, you fill in the blank. Almost everything that I've, that's happened to me with a student has also, I've also experienced that with a parent. And I have to love them. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting that you almost rather talk to that, that troubled youth than the, mm-hmm. than the troubled parent. Yeah. But you got, you have to lean into both. There's, it's just, you know, you're selling yourself short as far as your influence. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, Tyler, this has been awesome. Any other principal concept that we need to make sure we squeeze in here before we wrap up? I think my biggest thing, and I think, I don't know, I, I just love the idea of love first. Like that's the first thing like love, you know, it's before everything we do is, is a leader is love. 
And if, if you're loving first, everything else seems to fall in place. Yeah. Um, and you know, I am pretty passionate. My life is spent around mostly working with youth. And I think that's the kiss of death really is that a student or a youth doesn't feel loved. And we're trying to incorporate all of these other things, whether that's self-improvement or behavior management and love first, and then everything else second. If there's, if people are listening and they're like, man, I just love like Tyler's vibe. Like you do a lot of reading, whatnot. Like if you want to jump into some of your, these philosophies that you lead with, what, what any resources come to mind where they could start? So I, yeah, I mean, not to, not to self-promote, but I definitely, Instagram's probably my, where I try to push out. I, oh, cool. I've really gotten to the point where between Facebook and mostly Instagram, my whole goal with my, in that is just teach uh, 243. So teach underscore 243. And my number one goal, and the only reason I really use social media is I feel like is to try to spread that, spread kind of what's going on here at Roots, pointers that I wish I would have had when I was, you know, getting started as a education leader. And what's nice about, and what we try to do with that account is really make sure that account applies to parenting to, to every aspect of life. And so that'd probably be the resource where I'll share books and stuff and different things yeah. that I'm working with or is through that yeah. Instagram. And you recently did a takeover of the leading saints Instagram account and we, we saved it in a highlight bubble. So people will link to that and whatnot. And, uh, that's a great resource. People can scroll through that and find different topics or concepts you've talked about. So, well, with that, the last question I have for you is as you reflect on your time as a leader here at Roots Charter School, how has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? For me, it really is. It's It goes back to that putting love first and really striving to try to obtain or strive for the gift of charity. It's the chicken and the egg. I don't know if which came first. Am I trying to lead because I'm a follower of Christ? Is that what's improved what? But I think for me, I would say interacting with the students I interact with here has made me more Christ-like times a hundred, right? I didn't understand. And it's, it's participating in their suffering. It's loving them through their trials. Um, it's being hated and still learning to love. Those of all, it really helped me. They're hard, but they've helped me draw closer to Christ and not losing my focus. My focus is them and their success, no matter how they treat me. And I imagine that's what Christ experienced. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. Hey, listen, would you do me a favor? You know, everybody's got that friend who listens to a ton of podcasts. And maybe they aren't aware of Leading Saints. So would you mind taking the link of this episode or another episode of Leading Saints and just texting it to that friend? You know who I'm talking about. The friend who always listens to podcasts and is always telling you about different podcasts. Well, it's your turn to tell that friend about Leading Saints. So share it. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any perspective or thought on this episode, you can go to leadingsaints.org and actually leave a comment on the episode page. Or reach out to us at leadingsaints.org slash contact. And remember, go to leadingsaints.org slash 14 to access our full Young Saints virtual library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought 
forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.